Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 6, 10 through 15. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is God's word. What a joy and privilege to be back again as we continue this series, Stand Firm, from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. I am so thankful that the Word of God is not bound. It is not bound by weather or other circumstances. And that is why we are here today, even though you may not be physically present, I know that you are present in spirit. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, though I am not with you in body, I am with you in spirit. And in some ways, I can almost envision you out here in this auditorium, maybe we could say in disembodied spirits. And I can see your faces, and I'm very thankful that we have the opportunity this morning to once again delve into God's authoritative word and meditate on this portion of scripture together. I'd like to begin again with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to what you have to say. May our hearts be supple, pliable, obedient. May our eyes be open to the truth that you want to reveal. We pray, Father, that our wills would be available to obey that you would raise our awareness of, yes, the spiritual battle around us, but most importantly, the vast spiritual resources that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, I will be referring to several portions of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which probably, or not on the screen. So I encourage you there in the comfort of your home to have Bible in hand and be ready to look at various portions of Scripture for this book. The book of Ephesians stands together as a whole, and we really can't understand Paul's exhortations concerning spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20, without understanding the immediate and the broader context throughout this book. About a week and a half ago, my wife and I were on the way to the Memphis International Airport as I was leaving for a flight to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And we were moving along at a moderate pace, maybe 60 miles an hour, when all of a sudden, a van passed us on the left I would estimate at 90 to 100 miles an hour. And then beyond that began veering in and out of traffic in front of us. At first we were both caught off surprise. 
More so when suddenly seven police cars with their lights flashing and sirens screaming uh, came to the left and from behind and to the right, even driving on the shoulder of the interstate, also moving along at an estimated 90 to 100 miles an hour in hot pursuit of that one vehicle. I'll have to admit that out of curiosity and inwardly, I wanted to join the chase. I'm thankful that my wife was driving. She was wiser. In such a situation, police are in what is called code red. I've driven with or I've ridden with several police officers while I was pastoring in the city of Portland. Code red. Uh, it indicates a situation of high alert extreme security needed. I have the impression that that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. You and I are daily in and day out in a context of code red, high security. In other words, we are engaged in open war. In J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Theoden exclaims, I will not risk open war. And Aragon replies, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. And that is what Paul is telling us in these verses. Notice in verse 10, be strong. In verses 11 and 13, put on or take up. And in verse 14, stand firm. Essentially, Paul is saying this, stand firm against Satan's malicious attacks by putting on the splendid armor of God. But how do we put on the splendid armor of God? In answer to that question, we must understand what that splendid armor really is and how to employ each piece of that armor. And that is what we see in these following verses, verses 13 to 17. Today, our focus will be primarily and quite uniquely on verses 13, 14, and 15, which we've entitled Spiritual Warfare 101. We'll reserve Spiritual Warfare 102, or 201 rather, for next Sunday. It's in verse 13 that the apostle lays the groundwork for us. Notice what he says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Therefore, Therefore, pushes us back into the preceding context and what we looked at last week. And there we first of all explored the fact that we are engaged in a titanic spiritual struggle. In verse 12, it involves the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And all of these are under the command and authority of the ruler of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 and verse 2. And he attempts to deceive, defraud, divide, and destroy 
the body of Christ. It's interesting that in this verse, the Apostle Paul really doesn't go into further detail about the nature or ranking of these various powers. And I would suspect intentionally so. Elsewhere, Paul writes to the Romans saying this, I would have you wise unto that which is evil and simple, or wise unto that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. Romans chapter 16 and verse 19. In fact, there is somewhat of a danger in addressing this whole topic of spiritual warfare because the focus of the scriptures is never ultimately upon our enemy, but rather upon the immense spiritual resources that you and I have and share together in Jesus Christ. And that's probably why in that same context of Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul reminds us, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Secondly, last week, we talked about the schemes of Satan found in verse 11. And there you see on your screen the three primary ways that the enemy of our souls attempts to lasso us in to his perverted purposes through temptation, through accusation, and through deception. We'll be addressing each one of these as we today and next Sunday look at each piece of the splendid armor that God has made available to you and to me. But most importantly last week, we underscored the truth of verse 10 of Ephesians 6. And that is the spiritual resources that are made available to us in Jesus Christ. And we brought out this main point, we no longer fight for victory. We fight from victory. You and I fight from the spiritual high grounds. But the question is, how do we fight from the spiritual high ground? What are the implications of that? Look with me at verse 13. Here the Apostle Paul tells us to take up the whole armor of God. In fact, that command is repeated twice, both in verse 11 and in verse 13. It was about 60 years ago that I was awarded this little man, this Roman soldier. And I earned this figurine, this image, by memorizing God's word. And over the last 60 years, from a young age, I've kept it on my desk. And it is always there as a constant reminder of the daily spiritual battle that God has called you and me to. It was most likely in February of A.D. 60 that the Apostle Paul arrived in Rome and was placed under house arrest under the reign of Nero. Acts 28 verse 16 reminds us that Paul was in his own rented quarters where he experienced great freedom. He had people come and go and he was able to preach the gospel. Most likely that prisoner now freed Onesimus came and received instruction from the apostle. There was a steady stream of visitors, but during all of that time, the apostle Paul was under the watchful eye 
of the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard, they were the cream of the crop, the most elite of Roman soldiers. And they would relieve one another in steady succession, which gave Paul the unique opportunity to, as these soldiers moved in and out, to share with them the word of truth. I cannot help but think that the Apostle Paul in these verses developed the imagery of our spiritual warfare as he was able to observe up close the battle attire of each one of these members of the Praetorian Guard. Why are we to take up, in verse 13, the armor made available to you and me? Paul states it very clearly. In order that we might withstand in the evil day. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul reminds us, redeem the time, buy up the time, for the days are evil. What is the evil day? The evil day is now, today. It is out there in society, full of immorality and violence. But we often forget that it is also in here, in the church, in the lives of believers like you and me. In light of this, Paul gives us the main idea of verses 13 to 15, which I want you to remember and think about this week, and it is this. In the truth, righteousness, and peace of the gospel, stand firm against the malicious and relentless attacks of the adversary of our souls. The first piece of armor that Paul speaks of is in verse 14. Notice what he says. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Did you see what it says? Having fastened on the belt of truth. And then later in the verse, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then finally, having put on readiness of the gospel of peace. In other words, these first three pieces of the armor are pieces of the armor that we already have in Jesus Christ. They are ours by virtue of who we are in Jesus Christ. From the moment that we are placed in Christ at the point of our conversion, we have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have these shoes, these sandals that are given to us that speak of the gospel of peace. This is also evident in the fact that for each one of these pieces of armor, well, we find these pieces already mentioned in the book of Isaiah. In other words, the Messiah himself, spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, is clothed with each one of these pieces of armor. And so you and I, as believers in Christ, being in the Messiah, being in Christ, we share what he has. We are part of who he is. The belt of truth provides our defense, first of all, against the malicious deception of the enemy of our souls. Jesus once put it this way in speaking to the religious leaders of the day, you belong to your father, the devil. There is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And as the father of lies, Satan is constantly at work to beguile you and me, to deceive you and me, to trick you and me. He does this in the lives of unbelievers. For example, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of the image of Jesus Christ. And that is why, even in our evangelism, in our outreach as a local church, we have to constantly remember, as Paul puts it in that same epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, oh, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or worldly or carnal, but no, they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that would lift itself up against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Satan lies to unbelieving, the unbelieving population, but Satan also deceives you and me, those who name the name of Jesus Christ. He does this in several ways. Uh, for example, one way I believe in which Satan works among unbelievers is to, or b among believers, among Christians, is to begin to make us think that really this whole talk about Satan and the devil is nothing but a cartoon character or a team mascot or a philosophical metaphor for evil. Or if he does exist, then really he can't exert a profound influence in the life of you and me as believers. And as soon as you and I begin to think along those lines, we make ourselves susceptible to Satan's vicious attacks in our lives. Another one of Satan's deceptions is to convince us that somehow you and I will find in sin that which we enter sin to find. I'm not much of a fisherman. I did used to go fishing with my dad on the Gulf Coast when I was a young boy. And though not much of a fisherman, I do know one basic principle of fishing. You never catch fish without a bait. A hook alone will never accomplish the goal. The bait is the important element. The deception is in the bait. The deceit is in the bait and not the hook. Let me ask you, as a believer, what bait is the adversary using in your life? What does he use, as James puts it, to allure you, to entice you, to begin to make compromises in your life? What are your points of vulnerability? Have you identified them? Here's one of Satan's most deceitful schemes. Beyond what I've mentioned, I believe one of his most deceitful schemes is to lasso you and me into what I might call a Laodicean lukewarmness. Remember the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? 
You could describe them in the no man's land of spiritual indifference. They were ankle deep in a tepid spirituality that ran rampant through the church. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that the real activity of Satan is out there among the strip bars or among the drag queens or among the satanic temples. And by the way, there is one here in the city of Memphis. When in reality, we find the devil most at work where we least expect him, in the pews and in the halls of our local churches, inciting gossip, criticism, divisiveness, or a lackadaisical materialism that stifles vibrant spiritual growth. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, Jesus speaks directly to the church of Ephesus. This very same church, some 30 years later after Paul wrote this letter. And he says, you have forsaken your first love. Friends, it is our passionate love for Jesus Christ that can drive out the influence of the enemy in our lives. Well, in light of Satan's deceitful schemes, what should be our response? The fact that you and I can put on this belt of truth, it speaks of, first of all, the power over sin that you and I have been given in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is the truth of which Christ speaks of? I believe it is, first of all, the truth of our power over not only the penalty of sin in our lives, but even over the power of sin in our lives. Romans or Ephesians chapter 6 follows on the heels of Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle speaks of our intimate identification with Jesus Christ. The same is true in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, we have died with Christ to the power of sin. You see, this is the whole gospel. Part of the gospel is that Christ died for you as a believer. That frees you and me from the penalty of sin. But that's not the whole gospel. The full gospel is this, that not only did Christ die for me, delivering me from the penalty of sin, but I as a believer, you as a believer, you died with Christ to sin, delivering you from the power of sin. That is the truth of which Christ speaks. And it is that truth that can, as we understand it and as we appropriate it in our daily lives, can free us from the power of sin in our Christian walk. But not only does this truth, the belt of truth, speak of our freedom over the power of sin, it also speaks of our authority over the power of Satan. For you see, this sash, this belt, was not only worn by a Roman soldier and it girded up, it allowed him to take his garments and tuck them under that belt, giving him liberty of movement. 
But more than that, it was a royal sash around his waist. It spoke of nobility. It spoke of authority, which allowed that officer, high-ranking official, to wield his authority and giving commands over others. From a scriptural standpoint, you and I are all officers in God's army. Every last one of us. We have each been invested with the authority that our rank implies because we are in Christ, in the Messiah. In Ephesians chapter 2, we saw last week that the B.C. part of our life, that is before we came to know Christ, we were spiritually dead, deceived, and doomed. But then, thanks to Christ's work on the cross, we were made alive, we were raised, and we were seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. No wonder Jesus, in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, as he looks at that motley band of disciples and sends them out with the great commission, says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. And that authority has been given to you and to me over Satan and his demonic foes. Dick Hillis was the founder of the mission that my wife and I worked with for nearly 16 years in France. And he recounts an experience that he had early on in his ministry in China. A Chinese soldier came to him one day and said, is your Christ all powerful? To which Dick Hillis responded, why, of course he is. And then the soldier went on to explain, good, my wife is demon-possessed. And the demon is commanding her to take her life. He's done it repeatedly. But I have heard that your Christ is all-powerful. Can you help me? Dick Hillis, not having received much training in this area during his seminary studies, stuttered and waited and didn't know how to respond until his wife leaned over and whispered in his ear, Dick, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. At that point, Dick and his wife took that Chinese soldier into their home, and for the next three days, they committed themselves to intense prayer, asking for deliverance, but without any visible results. Finally, Dick puts it this way. He describes what took place. He says, in our reading of the scriptures, going through Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, God suddenly revealed to us that we were not only identified with Christ in death and resurrection, but that we were seated with Christ in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers, that we had ascended with him. Taking this new position, my wife and I sang in the presence of the woman, there's power in the blood. And then after singing, we commanded the demon to come out of her in the name of Jesus. She was instantly delivered. You and I share that same authority. Why? By virtue of the fact that we have been made alive, raised, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. 
Are you relying upon that truth, that belt of truth? When you experience the vicious roar of the adversary, are you relying upon the authority that is yours in the name of Jesus Christ? And then beyond that, are you also living truthfully? Are you living truthfully with yourself? Are you living truthfully with, in terms of your relationship with God and in your relationship with others? The belt of truth protects us against Satan's deception. The breastplate of righteousness protects us against Satan's accusations. Paul says in verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. Take that word righteousness, take off the yus, and take off the ness, and what you have left, you have the word rights. God's righteousness is the fact that he has declared you and me right in his eyes. He who knew no sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But it is precisely here that we are engaged in all-out warfare, are we not? For according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, our adversary is the relentless accuser of the brethren. For example, we have an illustration of this in Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 to 5. Notice what it says. We won't have time to go into the details. I'll simply read the verse. Beginning in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing on his right side to accuse him. That's what Satan does in our life. He accuses us incessantly, does he not? He projects evil thoughts into our mind. Have you experienced that in your life? Suddenly, you're talking with someone, and out of nowhere, you experience a thought that is as bizarre as it is immoral. And you think, where did that come from? And then, more than that, Satan comes alongside, and he accuses you for having that thought. Or Satan will use you as a vehicle for spouting out accusation against others within the body of Christ. As James reminds us in James chapter 3, the tongue is a fire set on fire by hell itself. What should be our response? Notice again Zechariah chapter 3. The Lord said to Satan, in this case, the angel of the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a man, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Oh, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, 
Who will bring any charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. Our filthy clothes have been exchanged for the very righteous clothes of Jesus Christ. And that is why when we are experiencing the incessant accusation of the adversary of our souls, we can do exactly as is exemplified in this passage. We can say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, away from me. But the truth of the breastplate of righteousness is not only doctrinal, it is also very, very practical. It has to do with how you and I live, how you and I live with one another. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, after describing the fact that you and I have been crucified with Christ to sin, delivering us from the power of sin, he exhorts us to Commit our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. And the sphere of our greatest struggles in this area are relational in nature. The litmus test of righteous living in the life of the church has to do with how we live in relationship one with another. And that is why Paul goes on to give us the third piece of armor, that is, the shoes of peace. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In the Roman Empire, Roman soldiers had the practice of being outfitted with a type of half boot with studded nails. And while the vast majority of the population went around barefoot, the soldier with these half boots with studded nails was able to have a firm stance without slipping or sliding. It gave him readiness. It gave him preparation for that time of conflict. You know, as I look at this verse, I find it rather paradoxical that it is in a context of warfare that the Apostle Paul talks about shoes of peace. And yet it really all makes sense, for it is that that the enemy wants to destroy in your life and mine. Now, you and I have peace with God. Paul tells us, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. But we also have been given that experiential peace of God. We sang earlier of that peace, the peace that we can have irrespective of the circumstances around us. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Like soldiers around our mind, they protect us from the onslaught of the enemy. In other words, Paul tells us in those two verses of Philippians 4, don't worry about anything, pray about everything, give thanks in all things and think about the right things. And when we do that, we will experience the peace of God in our lives. 
But you know, that's really not the focus in this particular epistle. In this context, as Paul talks about the sandals of peace, his primary focus has to do with peace within the body of Christ. Peace with others, irrespective of their color, their culture, their class, irrespective of generational preferences or styles of worship or anything else that could divide us as the body of Christ. We know the well-known axiom that I think my father once repeated from this pulpit, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that is another story. Why is it another story? What makes it so hard to live with saints below, our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? One reason why I believe it is so hard is because we fail to understand who we truly are as the body of Christ. We need identity formation. We need to understand, as it is so well brought out in this epistle, not only who I am in Christ, who you are in Christ as an individual, we need to know who we are together in Jesus Christ. The verses that I cited earlier, made alive, raised up, and seated. Actually, Paul says it this way, you have been made alive together. You have been raised up together. You have been seated together in heavenly places. My friend, if we have been made alive together, if we have been raised together and seated together in heavenly places, irrespective of color, culture, or class, or anything else that could divide us, certainly we should be able to live our lives together and putting on the sandals of peace with one another. Paul expresses this in Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There are so many things that can divide us as the body of Christ, or even as local churches. Cultural, ethnic backgrounds, worship style, political viewpoints, secondary doctrines, generational preferences. To the degree that any one or more of these areas divide us, or rather to the degree that any one of these areas define us, define our identity, they will divide us. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 27, he gives us a warning. It's a warning for you and me. We are members one of another. Be angry. Do not sin. In other words, in all of your differences as a congregation, yes, you can express righteous anger against sin, but never self-protective anger as it relates to secondary differences. And be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. An opportunity. Literally, that word is a door, a place. It is actually used in the Gospels of 
a place that was not found in the inn when Mary and Joseph were looking for a place of rest. The same term is used by Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 1 when he says to his disciples, look, I am going to prepare a place for you. Throughout the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul speaks in spatial terminology, in terms of situation and place. Essentially, he is saying that when we allow ourselves to be defined by certain secondary issues that then in turn create anger towards others, whether it be culture, ethnicity, or anything else, we are giving the enemy of our souls a place. We are providing a room for him to take more place in our lives. We must not waste our energy fighting against one another, but rather fighting alongside of one another, shield to shield. In this passage, Paul has said one thing, and it is this. In the truth, righteousness, and peace of the gospel, stand firm against Satan's malicious, relentless attacks. And the best way to do that is not only to not give a place to the devil, but to give Christ his rightful place. And that's why Paul concludes in Ephesians 3 verses 14 and 19. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Notice the diversity. Every family and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To dwell. To dwell means to settle down, to be at home, to allow Christ to have his rightful place in your life, in my life. You see, our best defense against the ongoing attacks of the adversary is to allow Christ to have his rightful place. Because what Christ fills, Satan flees. Robert Munger, some years ago, wrote a well-known book entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. And he based his book on this very verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. In other words, his appeal is for Jesus Christ to exert his influence, his rightful influence in every area of your life. The vast majority of you today are home in the comfort of your own house. And you can look around and see the living room, the kitchen, the bedroom, the library. You can even notice where the closets are. And so these various pieces of your house represent also parts of your life, 
For example, the library we could call the control center, that place of reflection and thought. Does Christ have his rightful place in that part of your life? Or we think of the living room, that place of relationship and fellowship. Is it pure, that compartment of your life? Are there relationships or friendships that are pointing you away from Christ? Or we could think of the kitchen, that place of appetite and desire. How would Christ speak to you in that part of your life? What are you pursuing? Where are you seeking to find satisfaction? Or what about the bedroom, that place of intimacy? Is there any illicit, immoral relationship in your life that Christ needs to shine his light on? Is there impurity? Are you maintaining your marriage in honesty and purity that speaks of who you are together? That relationship as a couple that speaks of the relationship of Christ and his church. Or what about the closets? As Munger puts it, the closet is where one or two little personal things are hidden that you don't want anyone else to know about. How would Christ speak to you there? Will you allow him to open the door of the closet of your heart and bring greater purity? What house cleaning needs to take place in your heart, Christ's home? Where does the truth, the righteousness, and the peace of the gospel need to push out deception, accusation, impurity, and discord in your life? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what your word has to say. Thank you for its richness. Thank you for its pertinence. Thank you that it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And by your grace, may it have its impacts on our hearts. And may we allow you your rightful place in every area of our lives, your home. In Christ's name, amen.